Hello, 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 and welcome to the Analytic Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Colin Day on the podcast. Colin is a project manager for the Institute for the Built Environment. As a PM, Colin's focus is on civic resilience as well as district and city scale sustainability solutions. He's a graduate of the Master's in Landscape Architecture program at Colorado State University with a focus on redesigning environmentally compromised landscapes for educational and community uses. In this conversation with Colin, we discuss urban development, how entrepreneurs can help in urban development, how to influence government and civic entities, how to grow and market a community advocacy organization, and we also take a brief foray into the challenges surrounding affordable housing. If you've ever wondered how designers think about the urban environment, i.e. where you and I live most likely, and how you as an entrepreneur or marketer might play a part in developing and designing that, then this podcast is for you. Without further ado, here's my interview with Colin Day. This is Tyler, and you are listening to the Analytive Podcast. Cool. Well, Colin, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'm super, super excited to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Of course. So for people who don't know who you are, a little bit of background about um, what you do with, uh, because you're employed at Colorado State University. Yeah, that's right. um, The Institute for Built Environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Institute for the Built Environment is what's called an enterprise institute at the university, uh, which means that... We are soft-funded. Uh, we do receive the benefit of being in the university structure and all the resources that that provides us. And, uh, of course, the network of, of CSU is one of those important resources. But uh, we act at uh, the Institute for the Built Environment more like a consultation firm. So we do fee-for-service. Uh, we also do education. Um, and the majority of our revenue is created through contracts with clients. Okay. And then what is a client for you guys? Oh, there's all different kinds of clients. Um, you know, I would say traditionally our client base has been design teams. Um, so architecture, engineering, and construction. Um, in the early years of IBE, which was founded in 1994, um, much of the work that was done here focused on building efficiency. Um, so sustainability in the built environment through a recognition that buildings are a large emitter in, um, in our culture and globally. Uh, so trying to address those efficiencies through the building sector was one way to get at the early ideas about efficiency. So many of those early clients then and and some of our long-standing clients have been design teams uh, that include architecture, engineering, and and construction partners. Um, Now at this point, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, municipalities. So we'll work directly with cities, um, mostly across the front range, but also nationally and internationally. Um, we also, you know, if we pursue a a grant opportunity for an initiative that, uh, isn't otherwise, doesn't otherwise have available funding through a clear client relationship, then we also treat those, uh, grant funders as our clients as well. Um, Okay. they're really all different kinds of clients. Sure. Yeah. And so let's talk first about the architecture. So they come to you. So obviously an architecture firm, they have engineers and even designers in house. So what is the value that you guys then are able to provide that they don't have access to um, immediately? Yeah, good question. So so what we provide is third party facilitation of processes. And that can mean actually that we are facilitating an actual meeting or charrette. Um, we are facilitating a process like a lead certification for a building. Okay. Um, we are facilitating a process of interface with research best practices and, and innovative approaches. Uh, so part of the uh, benefit that we provide is that we are here connected to CSU. And, and again, we do have those resources of all of the the brain trusts of CSU here at our disposal. Um, So we're able to provide basically a different set of eyes that um, 
while there might be expertise in-house with those firms, uh, they might not otherwise have either the bandwidth or the, um, the depth of knowledge or thought leadership that they want to make a project more innovative. Gotcha. Okay. And so what's your background then? Is it in design and architecture? <laughs> uh, kind of. Um, well, yes, but uh, there's the, of course there's more to, to the picture than that. So my background, in a roundabout way, I got into this work through um, fine art, actually. Um, cool. So I, um, I'm a working artist. I'm, I'm mostly a painter. Um, but I received my undergraduate education uh, from California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Um, and then I was actually working in film and TV in the Los Angeles region for five years after school. Um, during my time in LA, I became really fascinated with the ways that that city operates and the kind of complexities of the infrastructure there. Um, I've always had a, a, a really kind of environment, environmental focus to my personal ethics. Um, but then during that time in L.A., I also became really invested in um, permaculture and gardening. And so uh, that all blended together for me into a pursuit of a master's degree in landscape architecture. And so to the extent that I have an educational background in design, it's, it's through uh, that master's degree. Um, but my working uh, background in architecture and design really now is, it has been through my experience at the Institute for the Built Environment. Okay. So art, painting, through gardening, through landscape, yep. now, now here. Yep. That's a, that's a fantastic path. Uh, yeah, thanks. You know, it's it's surprising. It's always you know, it's full of surprises, and I it only I can only just assume that it's going to lead me to something else. Yeah, <laughs> you know, at some time in the future, because um, I have a really eclectic mix of of interests. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I understand that because we're, you know, I run a marketing agency and sure. had backgrounds in communications, all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, we're having this conversation, you know, which I think is, it's really fun to learn about a lot of things because you make connections you wouldn't otherwise make. Um, once you have, you know, if you just came up through architecture, you just came up through art, you know, but I'm sure having those unique um, skill sets allows you to kind of make connections that a lot of people wouldn't otherwise normally make. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's a it's a good point and and I I think that, you know, certainly some people are better suited to that kind of broad synthesizing uh, type of thought, but for instance, you know, you you brought up your work in, you know, marketing and branding, graphics and communication. Um, I'm I can only assume that the all of the content that you've been able to see and have access to just through that work uh, has enabled you to learn about things that you otherwise would kind of have had no point of contact with. Oh, yeah. And working with clients, you know, I know more about software development and, you know, m enterprise manufacturing and things, yeah, that I never would have known. But because, you know, we have to communicate their value proposition, I'm learning about, you know, laser precision laser cutting or whatever right. the client happens to be at, at right. the moment. And what are those value propositions across sectors? You know, I think that in a, in a way there is a lot of um, parallel there to, to the work that I do because, and that we do here at IBE, I think that that's what we're trying in large part to communicate to clients um, and to potential project partners so that we can help move efficiency and uh, sustainability and what we, we really talk about most is regeneration mm -hmm. uh, in the built environment forward. You know, we, we need to be able to clearly communicate the value proposition, whether that's a return on investment for a client or otherwise. Yeah. 
And when you talk about, so Institute for the Built Environment, you know, uh, I think environment can mean a lot of different things. One, it can just mean the place you are, right, where you yeah. live, or it can mean more the the nature, you know, the environment as a whole, climate, all that. So when you guys talk about the Institute for the Built Environment, I guess, or maybe there's a different a different definition. How are you using that term? Yeah, um, good question, and, and it's I think something that. You know, it's something that we have an internal, ongoing dialogue about. Um, And, you know, I would say generally the way that built environment is used in in common vernacular is that it is environments that have been uh, constructed for and by humans. Um, Environments that have been modified to meet the needs or uses of humans. Um, you know, I, I tend to push it a bit farther because when we're looking at, at the world, uh, you know, when we're looking at our global biosphere at this point, actually, you know, we can see pretty clearly through climate change that there is no environment in the world that hasn't been impacted by the way that we build and behave um, as human beings. So although we're not doing, you know, we're not specifically um, building uh, in in the Arctic Circle, um, you know, there have been impacts to the way that that biosphere and, and that natural, that uh, ecosystem infrastructure, if you will, has been impacted by the ways that we interact in our built environment. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that most usefully uh, and, and generally what we're talking about is the places we inhabit as, okay. as humans. And that can include uh, also, you know, open space uh, and how open space and connects to urban environments and the connectivity of species across our urban environments. Um, you know, how do we build for all species instead of just for us? Mm-hmm. So you really touch everything from, you know, untouched space to parks, you know, houses, uh, all the way to like office buildings and industrial and, and yeah. all that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you have a, most of your clients, do they fall in a, a bucket, broadly speaking? I mean, is it commercial properties? Is it parks? Is it, you know, you talked about municipalities. Mm-hmm. I guess do you have a, a specialty or at least something that pops up more frequently? You know, I would say that... Um, Over time, uh, I, I would venture that most of it has been for uh, com- commercial mixed-use, multifamily housing, or governmental buildings. So mm-hmm. generally not single-family structures. Um, certainly we've done a lot of work with and for CSU, and so those are... You know, in some ways, those have a, a commercial quality to them, but those would be more of an institutional sector of building. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, buildings for for certain over, over over the long haul, that's really been our our bread and butter as an organization. Very cool. And then we originally got connected via Urban Lab. The Urban Lab, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were involved with the very first or maybe second version of the website, but very, you know, it's three, four years ago now. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about Urban Lab? Because it's an initiative that you guys have going on, but uh, for people who haven't heard of it, what what is the Urban Lab here at CSU? Yeah, uh, so uh, the Urban Lab has um, now a six or seven year history uh, here in Fort Collins. It happens to be housed and managed here at, at the Institute for the Built Environment. And I have you know, had the opportunity and pleasure to coordinate that. Um, but actually it came out of an initiative through University Connections and um, so University, C-I-T-Y, uh, is this, has been over time uh, a way to build initiatives that have a collaborative function between the university and the city. Um, 
the Urban Lab actually had its genesis in what was called the uh, Infill and Redevelopment Subcommittee of okay. <laughs> the university, uh, which is not sexy at all. Uh, but it was originally looking at how, um, specifically on the Mason Corridor in Fort Collins, uh, before we had our bus rapid transit, before we had our um, railroad upgrades on that street, um, how infill and redevelopment could spur that corridor to becoming what it actually has uh, ultimately become. Um, and so the, the focus was, was quite narrow at the beginning. Uh, but ultimately what kind of rose to the surface was a long-term collaboration between CSU the city of Fort Collins and the Fort Collins Downtown Development Authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, the Downtown Development Authority uh, and IBE uh, at CSU, that's the Institute for the Built Environment, um, are the main contributors and participants in this effort. Um, it's grown organically to include a lot of different uh, types of professors over time from CSU uh, who have expertise in design and design thinking. Um, a lot of really fascinating uh, citizens of Fort Collins who are just interested in having a conversation about what our public spaces are and could be. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been a lot of great contributors uh, over the past seven years that have been from different departments at the city of Fort Collins. Um, So we have great relationships with the city, with the Downtown Development Authority, with CSU, and and really with the public as well. Um, So to say that it's it's an initiative of, of ours... It is, but it's also a shared initiative, and it just sure. so happens to to be that that we house it here, we meet here, you know. I I'm the de facto coordinator of it, um, etc. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so, for people who don't know, the Mason Corridor is a street here in Fort Collins that basically has a railroad right through the middle of it, like running basically parallel but through the middle. So there's you know a lane on each side with a railroad in the middle, but it's also one street over from the main street in Old Town. So it's you know, designing that to work for trains and locomotion, um, automobiles, walking, you know, foot traffic, bike traffic, like yep. was quite a challenge. Yeah, right? it was. Um, you know, we call we call those multimodal transportation corridors. Um, and for for transportation wonks, they they would have much more to say. But for the general public, I think that it's just a way to say that there are. As, as you said, a, a variety of different types of transportation happening. You know, it is a very uh, bikeable street. Um, it's a main thoroughfare for that. Um, and it has a bus rapid transit, you know. Um, so the, the way that it has blossomed and evolved is, is pretty cool. Um, because before all of this work happened there, you know, it really was in, in a lot of ways, a bit of a, of a dead, dead zone. And, um, there has been a lot of, again, infill, which means that there are, were parcels, uh, you know, you kind of think of them as broken teeth, you know? So if you have a, a parcel that's, that's vacant or otherwise uh, underutilized, it becomes kind of a, a dead zone along a corridor. And all of those parcels pretty much at this point have been filled in yeah. um, and have been reactivated with new business or uh, new multifamily uh, housing complexes. Yeah, I guess as someone who lives here in a non-technical sense, I would consider that area quite a booming area now. Yeah, for I mean, sure. There's coffee shops and, and retail shops and restaurants all along it, which is kind of bizarre because in most cities you don't see that that close to a railroad track, literally 15 feet, yeah. less than 15 feet from a railroad track, yeah, you know, through a main road. Pretty cool to sit on a restaurant patio and watch a 
15 minutes of graffiti pass on a heavy freight line. Yeah, I always joke there's a coffee shop there called Everyday Joe's, and I used to sit in there and do work from time to time. And yeah. It's like that scene from Inception, you know, where the train just comes right through the middle of the street, yeah. and you're just like, what's going... Like, if you're yeah. not paying attention, suddenly there's just a train outside the window. It's it's very bizarre, but yeah. very cool uh, way to, to utilize that space. And when we're right here on this corridor, so where we're sitting recording this podcast, we might have the benefit of, of hearing that in the background. But, you know, it's funny for me... I work uh, right on the railroad. I live two blocks off of it. And then when visitors come and we have those moments, like at a coffee shop or at a restaurant, they just say, is this not weird to you? What's, what's going on? Yeah. You know, so I just don't even notice it anymore. Yeah, for sure. Um, so then with Urban Lab, so obviously it's this initiative that you said is housed here, but involved with a you know city. So what... I guess maybe defining what does it do or how do ideas maybe that, or discussions in the urban lab translate into concrete being poured in the street? Like what does that journey look like and how does urban lab help facilitate that? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a great question and something that we're trying to, and we have always been trying to figure out ourselves. Um, so m- much of what urban lab has done over time has been focused on broadly what we can think of as community-based participatory design. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to involve any, any willing voluntary participant in a conversation about a space and to show them that their ideas matter, uh, that their ideas can impact the conversation about how we develop and redevelop public spaces and actually to give them agency and ownership um, to say that even though they're not necessarily designers, that so much of the innovation that comes through city life comes from the bottom up. Hmm. And, um, you know, getting wacky ideas that we source from uh, public input events to a point where, you know, the concrete can actually be poured is, is very complicated. But, um, you know, fortunately we, through our partnerships with the city and the, in the downtown development authority through their participation, we're able to use the channels that they already have well established to do some of that work. And, um, so unfortunately, we haven't had too many built projects. Um, mm. The a notable one that we can point to is the Colorado's first outdoor perennial living wall, um, which was designed. Actually, the genesis of it was as a design competition for students in the landscape architecture program mm. here at CSU. They, they put their design ideas in through a competitive process, and then we worked with one chosen designer uh, to take that idea forward and to streamline and simplify it based on the budget that we had available through a contract with the city of Fort Collins. Okay. And this was done through what's called the Nature in the City initiative. Um, so that initiative aims to increase biodiversity uh, impact in the city um, for increased livability and urban ecology. Gotcha. So we interface with that idea of urban ecology and biodiversity uh, with a participatory process of design. In this case, it happened to be with a design class and not with the general public. Uh, We worked with... uh, the winning design to streamline it and bring it to budget. We worked with a fabricator and a uh, green wall expert to get the design finalized in a way that would, you know, aim for success or, or hope for success at least. And, um, you know, this was a, this was uh, an untried and experimental approach in Colorado because of our climate. We don't have, these types of, of green walls. So, um, well, long, long and the short is that we did ultimately install this on the, uh, city of Fort Collins utilities administration building Mm -hmm. in downtown Fort Collins, the siting of it and, um, their onsite maintenance, 
uh, wasn't ultimately able to give it the environment and the care that it required. And so, um, you know, I'm excited to say that it's actually moving to the new butterfly pavilion at uh, the gardens on spring Creek here in Fort Collins. Oh yeah. And so it, it will be an educational centerpiece for families and their dedicated staff will be able to take, I think, um, more, uh, more close care of it um, because that's what a system like that requires in our climate. So uh, that's a long explanation to say that, you know, getting something simple like that built uh, actually costs a lot of money. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of people. It takes an idea and a willing client to pay for it, and finding a space to install it was was difficult. So, these are things. This is a small example of things that any any project needs to navigate. Um, oh, here we go. The train is coming. Yeah. So if you hear the train in the background, <laughs> you'll, you'll understand where we are. Um, good. Yeah. So. So it was a student idea that was then turned into the wall that it will eventually then end up over at the Butterfly Pavilion? Yep. I believe it's being moved uh, for the opening of the pavilion, which is has either already happened or, or is upcoming. Uh, my guess is that it won't uh, be fully installed or look vital for uh, probably a year. Okay. I'm not sure how you want to, how you want to deal with this Just train roll. here. All These right. are directional mics, so All hopefully right. we'll be good. Um, yeah. So then talk about, if you would, with an organization like Urban Lab. So uh-huh. you're dealing with marketing, you're dealing with branding, you're dealing with a lot of different players with different um, agendas. Yep. So how does marketing, communication, all of that play a role? Because it's different than your traditional business, right? Sure. Where you have like, oh, here's our one client that we take care of. I mean, how, when you think about Urban Lab and, and getting the word out, what does that look like for you guys? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And again, one that I think that we're still trying to kind of, um, we're still trying to navigate that process and find the best answer for ourselves. Um, you know, uh, it's difficult to describe what it is that Urban Lab does. And as you pointed out, it's, it's different than a traditional business. You know, we don't, it's not like we have a distinct product that we're offering. Um, what we're offering is a, an experience and a process that elevates or maybe even makes more common, um, the conversation about design of public space. And so when I think about it, the product is actually the collaborative experience of considering why our public spaces matter and what we can do to have them better and more equitably serve our, our populations in our cities. How can they catalyze uh, new activity or development in places that are underutilized? Um, you know, we variously kind of think about processes like tactical urbanism or creative placemaking, which, you know, for me and the work that I do is really common vocabulary, but for a lot of people that is, you know, it's like speaking Greek to them. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard those exact words in the same order, you know, like as someone who isn't part of that world. Right. Exactly. So... So that's the <clears throat> what it becomes important to clearly communicate the product offering, and um, you know, in spite of the good work, for instance, that that you did with us on our website, we, I think we still have had confusion about how to describe what it is that we're doing, mm-hmm. and you know, that's part of I think the identity of a young organization or a young initiative is to kind of, uh, narrowing in on that. Um, you know, it's not like we have, uh, a widget that we manufacture that we can sell to, you know, a company that makes another thing with our widget. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, further, you know, it's, it's tough to even, even in a, 
in a climate where you can really accurately identify what it is that you are communicating and selling. Um, right now, the, the work in the built environment, work in sustainability, um, you know, it's, it's generally thought of as a, an add-on, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not business as usual uh, to go above and beyond um, in building and development. Um, we generally, as a culture, are not incentivized to do this. And um, the, in general, the conversation around uh, climate and what we can do to uh, positively impact um, the, the climate, the critical climate problems that we have, uh, has become deeply politicized. And, um, so it's an uphill battle. I mean, everything, everything about communicating it effectively and in a way that is accessible and is universal is extremely difficult. Sure. Um, so branding that story, branding that idea, marketing it, clearly, uh, showing what the value add is, um, what that product represents and why it's important to us as, as a species and as a a global, um, a global collection of species is, you know, it kind of can, it can make the head spin. So simplifying it is difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that marketing and communication and branding is a critical piece. Um, but of course, first you need you need to know internally what it is that you're saying. You know, if I were to if I were to hire a marketing firm, they'd have a lot of questions to get to the bottom of you know what the heck it is that I'm actually talking about. You right. Know? Um, and so again, it's kind of like. Uh, an architect would bring the Institute for the Built Environment in as a third-party consultant to have a fresh set of eyes and offer uh, a useful set of information to their approach. So, too, I think we many organizations and businesses need need marketing, need branding and communications to come in and say, okay, now that I understand what you're saying, I'm telling you that this is how you can get that across to the public, how you Mm -hmm. can sell that idea. Um, So it's a similar type of process, I think. I see the parallels there. Yeah. I think a couple of things that when you were talking that made me think is, first of all, you're right, knowing exactly what you guys are yourselves, Mm. super important. And I think in our, even in past conversations, like that's emerging, you know, as, as urban lab continues to mature and become an organization and also who you're trying to reach, you know, because a lot of customers, they have, you know, their whiteboards. So it's like, okay, offices and, you know, schools, like they have a list of, of clients, right. Um, you know, for you guys, like who needs to know about urban lab, because it's not ever going to be something probably ubiquitous or at least not in the near future. And, uh, you know, the random person on the street here in Fort Collins isn't going to know what you guys do, but who needs to know that, right? Is it, you know, city council? Is it the architecture firms? Is it the construction companies in town? Is it designers and developers? Is it just concerned citizens, you know, in, in whatever bucket that falls in? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, so the Urban Lab here in Fort Collins is is loosely a an example of what the broad constellation of social labs. So there are different there are different types of social labs, um, or they call themselves different types of things. Um, but it's basically like a collective a collective thought or collective impact model towards. Um, Generally within the urban sphere, but sometimes within for social issues. Um, But it's a way to say that there is a a laboratory type approach. So prototyping, testing, making a hypothesis about, oh, you know, uh, this bus stop uh, is 
not well utilized. Mm-hmm. If we could make it a cool place to stop and be, uh, maybe that would improve, you know, the use of it by by users of the bus system. I wouldn't say that that's the strongest example, but I think it's one that's that's common enough, um, mm-hmm. you know. And in terms of what we're selling and to who, you know, there's there's a reason that different types of social labs are often volunteer type organizations and don't don't capture a lot of revenue. Um, you know, we've been lucky in our connection to the Fort Collins Downtown Development Authority and the city of Fort Collins that they would like to test novel and innovative things in public spaces. Um, but so much of the work that is done in the milieu of social labs globally is really about oftentimes it's guerrilla, oftentimes it's pop-up, oftentimes it's short-term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... Uh, not approved, you know, right. through typical uh, lines of approval, planning, zoning, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so the limitations that we have uh, on trying to play by the rules, I think, you know, they offer us uh, good design, good design constraints, um, but they also prohibit us from approaching uh, different types of public space interventions like some other social labs would, which mm-hmm. would be, uh, you know, again, as, as a guerrilla organization or without permission to do so. Um, some of these social labs can have kind of a catalytic moment where they uh, create something that becomes um, ubiquitous, ultimately. Like the best example that I can think of is the way that parklets have spread uh, through first North American cities and now globally um, through what is was originally called Parking Day. This came out of uh, a firm in San Francisco. And um, for, for those who are listening that don't know what Parking Day or parklets are, they would be uh, a a patio space that would take away a parking space. So um, you see these a ton in San Francisco, but now increasingly in both large and small cities across the country and and internationally. Um, This came out of an original idea for uh, a kind of tactical urbanist approach where, um, again, this firm in San Francisco uh, decided to... um, instead of thinking of a parking spot as a place to park a car, thinking of a parking spot as a small park. Hmm. And they actually would set up a small park in a parking spot and just feed the meter and just sit there on AstroTurf and some lawn chairs and feed the meter. And uh, this created so much attention that this this firm, which is now called Rebar, um, has been able to stand up as actually as a design firm when originally what they were doing was tactical urbanist and kind of guerrilla approaches. Um, and one of these technologies, the parklet, has now spread because sure. of it. So I'd like to also get your opinion. I mean, one of the things that is a constant conversation, um, and maybe, you know, there's like an official opinion with IBE, or I think maybe I just love your own opinion as well. You know, one of the things we're dealing with both in Fort Collins, Colorado in general, and nationally is affordable housing, right? Like houses, as more people move out here, it becomes more expensive. Um, Have you guys, either as an organization or, like I said, within yourself, your own opinions, do you have solutions for this? I mean, is this something that you guys are thinking deeply about at this point? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say that there are other people certainly who are thinking more deeply about it, um, who understand the complexities of affordable housing processes and how uh, organizations who are specifically focused on affordable housing can navigate the market in such a way that it creates an opportunity for that organization as a development firm. So, for instance, um, here locally in Fort Collins, we have what's called the Fort Collins Housing Catalyst. That's our affordable housing, our main affordable housing developer here in town. Um, Now, they are developers, and um, 
so they have to they have to navigate their own portfolios and bottom lines in such a way that that their business is um, is sound and stable. Uh, we do have, of course, at the federal level, um, HUD, and HUD acts to help to subsidize uh, certain uh, local or regional approaches to affordable housing. Um, but the bottom line is, in our in our economy, the way that the, the way that it's set up is that uh, you know developers are not incentivized ultimately to create these products. Um, you know, they're incentivized by their own profit-driven, usually profit-driven motives, and because of that, we get buildings that are of low quality. Um, the the materials that they're made from are, are extractive and non, non-renewable. Um, so oftentimes they don't perform well and uh, they are market rate. Um, and in a community like this, that is very inaccessible to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is difficult to fully answer your question without going into uh, some the minutia of, of the economics of, of housing and development um, or the economies of housing and development. Yeah. But I mean, I'd be happy to go as deep as, as you're, you'd like, because I'm, I'm, this is something I'm infinitely curious about. Yeah, sure. Um, because it's something that I don't know the answer to. I have hunches and you hear different people, well, it's zoning laws, it's developer problems, you know, like what are all the, I mean, even maybe a bullet pointed list of sort of the core factors would at least be helpful to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the core factor is, from my perspective, is it's about the the mechanism of real estate, you know, uh, and by that I mean um, real estate is thought of as a primarily as an investment. Now, so if you're a developer and you're thinking of a real estate as a transactional and de- and a development opportunity that is transactional or that is profit-driven, mainly, um, you're not thinking necessarily about the building, about the users of the building. It's about putting up a product, say, in this example, we're putting up a product that is a multi-family apartment building. Probably it's going to have some kind of mixed-use quality on the bottom floor. That could be office or retail space. Um, so you're accounting for a product that will capture uh, a certain return on investment, either from the the party that ultimately buys that product and owns and operates it, or as if you're a developer that's also an owner-operator, you're looking for ways to maximize your return through rents mm-hmm. or potentially... Uh, sales of, you know, new, new mortgages to, to people. Um, so the main factors are really about the economy of real estate and how the real estate market has mechanisms that are beyond, in some ways, anyone's control. I mean, it's all really tied in to a very complex web. Uh, and our economy is so deeply tied in in a complex way to real estate as one of the main vehicles for investment that people have in their portfolio. You know, mm-hmm. that's part of why people say like safe as houses mm-hmm. because traditionally the, the safest way for you to have a long-term return on investment over time on your money is through owning real estate. Right. Um, so it's, it's money driven and uh, you know, the divide and and people who have the money for real estate have the money to buy and develop it and people who very oftentimes don't have the money to either buy or even rent it that divide uh demographically and and economically in our culture continues to to widen mm-hmm. and it's uh, a really wicked problem you know and a lot of it has to do too with uh, desirability of place. You know, um, 
So we happen to live in a place that people want to move to for different reasons, you know. Say here in Fort Collins, it's it's the outdoors, it's the bike culture, it's the brewery culture, it's the weather, etc. So people are moving here from other markets that have topped out. Mm-hmm. Take Seattle as a good example, or really a lot of the major metropolitan regions. Um, but if you were to have been a homeowner in Seattle or in the Bay Area in California, and you know maybe you're tiring a little bit of the city life there, and you think, well, some mountain air sounds nice. Uh, you sell your home there for $800,000 or more, and you're able to move here and take a home off of the market, cash on hand, uh, before any other buyers that are here local that have been saving up for their first home, for instance. So you're you're trading in a an eight hundred thousand dollar apartment in a city for a four hundred fifty thousand dollar you know two acre um, four bedroom two bath home in a beautiful place. It's not a bad deal. Sure. Uh, so, you know, and that's the way that money moves around and, um, and that's the way that places, you know, quote gentrify. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, there's, there's so much to it that is impossible to control or really to regulate in the system that we have, uh, and really in a neoliberal economic uh, world, you know, there have to be organizations like the Fort Collins Housing Catalyst and other affordable housing developers to create products that are subsidized by different forms of capital so that they can be sold or rented below market rate. And there are more people lined up for those products um, than there are the products themselves. So it means that people ultimately are displaced. Um, or, you know, God forbid that they then experience homelessness for some time. So, yeah, there's there are a lot of social, cultural, economic issues involved in it that, again, I mean, if you want to if you want to get deep into this, I would be happy to to connect you to the experts. Yeah, I, I think it was it's a question that I have is, you know, we recently just bought a house. Obviously, we're very fortunate to be in a position Congrats. that we can. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, love it. I mean, it's been really fun. But I think when you look at you know, what you get for a house and and how much money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for some wood and some drywall and some plumbing and electricity. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but it's like, you know, you can buy a, you know, a car that has way more technology, yet fewer natural resources. I get that, you know, for $30,000, right? And then, you know, a home that just has wood and, and drywall and, you know, things that cost $8 a sheet and a whole lot of labor. I think for me, it's always curious about where the the costs are in that process, you know, and how, um, yeah, how, you know, by bringing the cost down, housing can become more affordable. And that's obviously everyone plays a part in that developers, zoning laws, market, you know, people moving, as you mentioned, to and from different places. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, something that I've been curious about recently. Well, it's, it's a great question. I wish that everybody thought so much about it. You know, I mean, you, you hit on one of the main issues, which is materiality. Um, Ultimately, uh, people don't know this, but uh, cement and concrete are not only incredibly carbon intensive as products, it's one of the most carbon intensive building products that we have, but it's also incredibly expensive. Hmm. Um, If you're talking about, say, the foundation of a home, you know, Um, I I also don't want to discount the importance of skilled labor. You know, a lot of the cost of a home has to deal with craftsmanship. And, um, you know, if we think about the way that homes are built today, they are not built in with the expectation that they will have the longevity in the way that we used to build homes. You know, for instance, the place that I live in is I rent a place that is uh, was built in 1890. And, um, you know, true brick, true cut lumber, um, and it's it's still standing, you know. It by and large, it actually hasn't really had that many issues over time. I know because I've I've talked 
you know, a great deal with the owner of this property. Um, and so you're, you're, you're buying a piece of land too, which is, you know, always, it's kind of, that's kind of strange to think about that you, you know, that you own a piece of land, a piece of the earth. Um, and, and that's really what you're buying. You're buying that space because there are plenty of examples where somebody will come in, you know, we can return to our early, earlier example. Somebody comes in from, from another major metropolitan area. They've got 800000 to a million dollars on hand. They can buy that piece of land. Maybe they just want that piece of land because it's in a location that they like, mm-hmm. uh, you know without any regard for the house and you can scrap the house and make maybe even a better performing brand new house for the balance of that money. Um, so, you know, long short is uh, I can tell you if you ever, if you've ever tried to build a house, (laughs) you know, or like if you've ever, you know, gotten the opportunity to work with Habitat for Humanity, um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into it. And, and, uh, it's a fa- it's fascinating for me also as well as you know as as you've brought up to think about what is this all made of mm-hmm. what are we actually living in here what are we actually sitting in right now you know yeah and i i experienced that cuz my my folks built uh, a home and so when i awesome. was you know 9 to 12 but when you build a home especially if you do it yourself you're never really really done you know, no. there's always always more to do and so i got to experience that um, yeah, and certainly a lot of, a lot of time. So anyways, well, we're almost, uh, at the hour. So. Oh, geez. Well, um, well, I, I, uh, it's been awesome to talk to you and I'd be happy to return if I haven't, uh, bored you to tears at this point. No, it's been, it's been really interesting. So if people want to connect with you guys, find out about Urban Lab yep. or Institute for Built Environment, CSU, how, what's the best way to do that? Yep. So, uh, we are at, uh, IBE dot state dot edu. That's Institute for the Built Environment for IBE and Colo State for Colorado State University .edu. Um, you can always reach out to me, uh, my email address, Colin, C-O-L-I-N dot day, D-A-Y, at colostate.edu. And I would be hard-pressed to send you the link to the Urban Lab website right now, in spite of the great work that Tyler <laughs> has done in the past, because, ago, we're, yeah. because we're actually overhauling it at this moment. So we're cool. trying to get that message that we talked about uh, much better communicated. Yeah, can't wait to see it. Yeah. So, cool. Colin, well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.